Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. And there we have it. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and we have a lot to discuss this morning. You know what? You know what? It's our second show for the year. And, you know, start of the year, it's always good to do a little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of orientation. We've got a lot planned for the year. Um, some new voices this year, including one today. Now, regulars will know that we've gradually evolved into a four-weekly roster with a collection of hosts and panellists. And this year, the hosts are... Well, you had last week Dr Nick, this week myself. Next week, is it Panel Beater, Panel Beater? I think it's next week. No, no, it's Dr Mel and the Panel Beater. Of course, you'll, all, you'll know us all. Dr Mel, of course, started this whole thing 20, oh, over 20 years ago now. And, of course, we have our team of regular panellists, which is probably, I think, about 10 strong now. Um, as usual, we're keen to get as much feedback and ideas as possible. And, as usual, our social media is in action. On Facebook, we are Radiotherapy on Triple R. And on Instagram, we are triple Radiotherapy underscore Triple R. Panel Beta, I'm going to ask you another question right now. Yep. Can you tell us what our Twitter one is? At underscore Radiotherapy underscore. At radiotherapy was already taken. Can you believe it? So rude. Indignity. Can we email them? (laughs) Um, As for today, we've got a special guest in the studio. We have Professor Claire Delaney. Um, Claire is a professor of health education and a clinical ethicist at the Royal Children's Hospital. And she joins us today to explain how clinical ethics works in the hospital setting. Also in the studio this year is the first of our new panellists, Dr. Patient. Good morning. G'day, Dr. Patient. Um, why don't you tell us what your what brought you to the show this year? Well, I wanted to come back after last year. It was yep. uh, it was just so much fun and uh, answering a question. I think uh, I think we need more uh, peer ambassadors and uh, support advocates on the show. And you are a peer ambassador for Sane Australia. Correct? I am. I am. I am a peer ambassador for Sane, and uh, Sane Australia specifically uh, deals with the uh, low prevalence disorders like bipolar, schizophrenia, of which I am a patient. Yeah, and. Uh you know, look, we were just, I, I hate saying we were just discussing in the green room, but we were just discussing after over 20 years of radiotherapy, we've had lots of guests on talking about their experience of illness, but we've never really had a regular, what we would call a consumer representative as a regular panellist. So uh, we're super excited. And yeah, you do. And, but I also sort of, feel, I sort of feel this need to apologise, not to you, but to the community. It's... God, we're behind the times. You know, we started this... The, this movement started decades ago and it's taken us so long to get a regular panellist. Anyway, we've tried to correct the trend this year well, and we're super keen to have you. We loved having you on last year and we're you. so glad you've come back this year. Also back this year, she's going to have to change her name next year, for 2020 is Trainer Wheels. And uh, it's tra- Trainer Wheels is our trusty medical student who's been on the show. How many, is this your fourth year? I think it is, yeah. But it's... Your final year of medical school. Yeah, I so know. you know, next year for 2021, you have to lose the trainer. I know, title. but I actually I like it. Maybe I'll just keep it. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I've been a doctor now for I don't know a couple of hundred years, and I still totally feel like I've got trainer wheels on. Okay. So That's I, good to it know. never really changes. And also, of course, pressing the buttons you've already heard from the, today, and joining in the general banter is the panel beater. Good morning. Happy New Year, everyone. Great yeah, to have you, uh, Dr. Patient. I reckon it's a great uh, oh, it's nom a de plume. The only thing yeah. is, what's, that, what's your nickname? Because it's a long one, Dr. Patient. We can't just call you Patient. We can't, Doc Patient? And also it reminds me of Dr. Patient's Pat? relationship. Pat? Pat for Patient? No, Pat? you don't like it? No, I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> I think we're just going to go with Dr. Patient. We have patient. time. Anyway, no, send, send, in, uh, send in suggestions. We'd, uh, I'd love to hear him because uh, at the moment I think Dr. Patient's a cracker. So thank you for that, Steve. <laughs> but we'll take suggestions on our social media. But before we do, let's get to the news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And uh, we're going to kick off the news with 
basically a story that we covered last week, but we're going to get, because it's evolving so quickly, we're going to touch base again. Coronavirus, trainer wheels. We've got a little update. I'm sure listeners will have heard about it. It's all over the news, the novel coronavirus that started in China about a month and a bit ago. Latest figures, I've just got the website open now, 34,000 confirmed cases and 725 people have died of the new coronavirus worldwide um including you know a number of cases in australia now nobody's died in australia as far as i know um but the biggest news i think of the week has been the government response here and worldwide you know the, the who declared a public health emergency of international concern just over a week ago and um in response to that, the Australian government has banned all foreign arrivals from China or people who've recently been in China. So Australian citizens and permanent residents are permitted to enter the country, but anyone else coming from China or having recently been in China is denied entry, their visas are revoked and they're sent back home, which is pretty extreme. Other countries aren't doing that. And not consistent with WHO advice either. No, the yeah. WHO has advised against any travel or trade restrictions. Yep. And in places like Canada, they're still accepting all visitors, but um, they're quarantining people as they see yeah. fit. And uh, and the other big thing is that, you know, and quite a few Australian citizens and permanent residents who were in Wuhan were evacuated and are now spending their days on Christmas Island. So, T, yeah. so this is quite a big change. So mm. I know... Lots of us have been following this debate. I know you have, in particular, panel beta. What do you make? Why does a different? What are your thoughts on why a government might might break from the recommendations of WHO? There's no question that um, in the public policy space that this is a political decision. It's got nothing to do with health management. There's no precedent where quarantining, other than really, you know, quite um, quite literally, very very specific quarantining with infections um but quarantining in terms of human mobility has never ever ever done any good in fact it does the opposite because people work around it so if you're a dual citizen and you travel on one passport and not the other um and lots of chinese coming into australia are doing that um they'll come in or um most pointedly people um it, it denies in this case australia the opportunity to identify who's a risk and who's not. And so if somebody mm-hmm. comes in and they come in under subterfuge, then uh, but they're infected, we'll never know what that source was. That doesn't stop the infection. I think it's also interesting that, you know, way back a few weeks ago now when the first cases in Australia were sort of coming to light, it, it came out that those people were self-quarantining at home anyway. And it sounds like people are actually taking a lot of responsibility and being really reasonable about it, you know, with their own health and the public health consequences of it. And I sort of, I don't know, maybe it's too much to ask, but I, I feel like maybe we can just trust people if, they're, if they've been at an, in an at-risk location to kind of lay low for a while and make sure they don't get sick because all the people who have had it have acted really responsibly. I saw, I did see an article with, re, with regards to acting responsibly. I see it, uh, people see it as desperation, desperate to get back to work. They want the kids back in school. They just, oh, we flew through. I'm, oh, they're going to be fine. We'll send them in. And uh, that, that is where the risk comes out. It does come from the desperation that they need to get back to work. They need to get back to school. And uh, I, I can't verify the article. I read the article last week on the news saying that a school did get exposed. A student mm. went back. They had passed through the area. Mm. They went back. They exposed potentially four or 500 students. They did eventually report it to the school, but not not before. But that isn't, that isn't uh, a common thread. That mm. is a very out, outsiding mm. thread. But the desperation is there. And also... I guess watching it in... I've been away, as some people know, for the last couple of weeks, so I've been watching it from a distance. And in particular, I've been watching some of the medical debates. You know, my essentially mates and various other groups on email and various chat groups talking about it. Mm. And um, everyone obviously acknowledges the significance and the number of people who died and have got sick is very high. But, of course, they compare it to other similar illnesses like the flu, where obviously, I don't know, millions die a year, way more common, and... Um, early on, a lot of the infectious people were saying things such as, and they're standing by it, they're Mm. saying, um, and this is not to diminish it, they're talking in medical chat groups around it saying it's a storm in a teacup, it's not nearly as bad as the flu in any given year, it's not nearly as bad as the other things. Sure, we've got to be careful because it's novel. 
But a lot of what we're seeing is a political response of governments grandstanding and various people grandstanding, and this is silly. We should not be delaying school. We should not be delaying exams. We mm. should not be. We should be treating it like any outbreak until we know that there's something significantly different. The fear and confusion that we create by making people imagine that there's these killer epidemics in the community that are waiting to attack us is far worse than um, the benefits we're getting from limiting what is really a an example of the flu. Now, others in the group have responded by saying, you know, it's not a storm in a teacup, you're underplaying it. And so, you know, the medical community okay. argue too, you know, what about all the economic impact? What about all this? It's not a storm in a teacup. What about the people who died? So, and I've been watching this debate from, debate from afar with a sort of, you know, it's really quite interesting because I see it as sort of, you know, globalisation has created the ability to have these conversations and to create this fear and to create these international examples in something that's been occurring, obviously, for centuries. It's, it's just, it's quite weird. I think it's also, I mean, I'm not a public health expert, but epidemiologically, I can't see the difference between an Australian citizen who has family in China who was spending time with their family as a local around Wuhan or, you know, the surrounding areas versus a Chinese person who is not Australian citizen in exactly the same circumstances, both coming back to Australia, their exposure risk would be the same. Mm. But why are we allowing the citizen, you know, Australian citizens in but not allowing foreign nationals in? Mm. It just seems, I mean, it just sounds racist to me. There's a couple of other themes at play, I reckon. One of them is around the notion of expertise. And I think, Doolittle, this is part of what you're getting at. Um, the public's um, relationship to the notion of expert is tenuous. Right? You love so, this topic, that oh, I, I, do, I do too. It's, it's a bugbear. It's a real bugbear. And and so I've heard people, um, you know, bring, wheel out the climate change, climate science and the um, infectious disease science comparison on this, you know. And so the temptation for our politicians to ignore the climate science and the temptation for our politicians to ignore or misunderstand what the WHO is actually saying. Um, and then you've got the citizenry who are going, well, who do we trust? Um, who do we believe? And that relationship to expertise, I think, is is at play here as well. You know what we need? I've just thought of this. You're going to love it. We're going to create it. The Institute for... Um uh, for credible experts. So you know how you get five heart stars on a, you know, if on the food, if it's healthy? From now on, we can we need a system <laughs> yes. where, okay, this is a, a five-star expert in climate science. Um, no, this is a one-star total fool in climate science. You know, we need some way of judging experts. Some scallywag is just thinking of the climate science said, um, you know how Morrison goes on, oh, look, Australia is only 3.5% of the world's uh, emissions and therefore that diminishes our responsibility somebody I, I can't remember where exactly i saw it but said oh, australia is only three and a half percent of the world's population if we all die by coronavirus <laughs> so what no one will notice <laughs> and on that note we're going to go to a break you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform so Professor Claire Delaney is from the University of Melbourne Department of Education and she's a professor in health professions education. And she does all sorts of things to do with education, which I'm going to ask her. But also she runs a clinical ethics service at the Children's Hospital, which she's, I think is recently expanding to other hospitals. But let's hear from the expert herself. Claire, g'day. Hello. Thank you so much for making the trip in to see us this morning. It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking. Hey, why don't you get the ball rolling by telling us about yourself? How did you get into this area of clinical ethics? What, what was your background that led you down this path? So my background is initially as a physiotherapist, where I worked clinically for many years. And I then became interested in law and ethics related to health professionals. There was a particularly high-profile case in the early 80s, or sorry, early 90s, about an ophthalmologist who did some surgery on a woman who... Rogers um, versus Whittaker. Indeed. One of my favourite cases. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt And uh, when that case came up, the um, uh, requirements for informed consent suddenly became front of centre yes. in medical practice and in all sorts of health practice. So I did a Master's of Health and Medical Law and wrote about Rogers and Whitaker and, and then I did a PhD looking mainly at informed consent and what the law says doctors should do and what ethical theory 
says they should do and then I listened to what they did do and um, made some comparisons. And that got me into the field of clinical ethics. Right. Where did you do the PhD? Was it at the at Children's Melbourne. at Murdoch? No, 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 it was at Melbourne University. Right, because it's, it, it's, there's a number of people who, in the world today around town who call themselves clinical ethicists mm. and there doesn't seem to be a clear pathway other than developing an interest, doing something like you've done you know, it, it seems like sort of an evolving specialty almost. It reminds me a bit of like infectious diseases back in the day when people started becoming infectious diseases specialists and, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it sort of gradually evolved and, and found its niche. Is clinical ethics going down the same path? Absolutely. Um, especially in Australia, it is evolving. It is starting to be recognised as a... I think profession might be a bit too strong a word, although in the US... Because all hospital or many hospitals, as part of their accreditation, require a clinical ethicist, mm -hmm. so they're starting to develop um, uh, accreditation pathways. Right. Whereas here in Australia, most clinical ethicists will have a background in either law or a health professional um, background or a philosopher. Yep. And then they usually do another degree in um, bioethics mm -hmm. or um, health ethics. Do you need to have a clinical background? Do you need you, you were a physiotherapist originally, weren't you? That's correct. Yeah. Um, no, you don't. I think there are a few lawyers around who become ethicists, and um, there's a few philosophers. The person I work with at the Children's, uh, Lynn Gillum, mm -hmm. comes from a philosophy background. Uh, so really quite different backgrounds. And then there's the topping, which is uh, some study in bioethics. So can you maybe then, having told us how you got there, yeah. tell us what you do? So what's the typical clinical ethicist's day in a hospital? Uh, well, that's really variable. So I'll base it on my experience. Sure. Uh, but uh, our service uh, provides clinical ethics consultations via a clinical ethics committee. So uh, we do wait for a formal ethics consultation request to come in and that, that then triggers bringing the t a team of health professionals who are already in the hospital uh, together to formally discuss the case. But there are other ways we do it. We get phone calls from clinicians saying, I've got this difficult situation where, um, you know, we're not quite sure whether to offer... Um, a, a particular treatment to a child and so you know can we have a chat so I sometimes go down to chat with them or and we do ethics education which turns out to be clinical ethics cases discussions within each department so really what a clinical ethicist does on a day-to-day -day basis is bring ethical reasoning to bear on practical issues Sorry, Claire, you were... Yeah, well, yeah. practical issues such as when there's disagreement between clinicians or disagreement between a clinician and a patient yeah. or uncertainty about things to do. I find um, discussions of ethics just fascinating because they're full of tensions, aren't they, and competing interests. And, and one of the aspects of that, I imagine, in a hospital where you're dealing with the board's broad spectrum of the community is the notion of ethical relativism, right? So where you're trying to identify ethics against the norm of a culture, it's going to depend on the culture of the patient in many respects, but also the culture of the hospital or wherever the environment might be that the professionals are acting in. Absolutely. I've got a good brief case yeah, that, that yeah, illustrates some, case, some yeah. of those things. So the hypothetical case of 15-year-old Tom, who is suspected of a recurrence of his cancer, several months after completing cancer treatment, which included radiation and chemotherapy. So he arrives in your rooms, you being an oncologist, um, and uh, with his parents, and to benefit him, to find out, in fact, if it's a recurrence, you really need to do diagnostic tests. But um, Tom's parents explain to you that Tom doesn't want any more testing, and they say he's going to pursue alternative treatment exclusively. Tom says nothing. His parents explain his grandfather runs a herbal medicine shop and wants him to pursue alternative approaches. And they've given your chemotherapy medicine a chance. It was horrible for Tom. I know it helped him, but, you know, he, he lost his hair. It was just awful. So you have to respond to that right now. And you've got patients in your waiting room. And so although there are clear ethical principles 
you know, you're supposed to benefit Tom. You're supposed to do the right clinical thing by him. You're not meant to cause harm or allow him to get a recurrence of cancer. But you're also meant to respect parents as decision makers. You're meant to respect Tom as an emerging adult with his own views, although he's not expressing them at the moment. Uh, so it, it's a, uh, an example of an absolute clash of, of principles, of the culture of this family, what they value, what they're bringing, and what you as a clinician think is the right thing to do. So you might get... Uh, well, if you got a call like that, mm. would it normally be... It would normally be what, like a phone call, an email, or, you know, that maybe they can buy time and say, look, can you come and speak to me next week? I need to think about it and yeah. da, 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 and go through the committee process. But what yeah. would be your response? How would you address a question like that? Well, I think one of the things that an ethicist does is buy time and space yep. to discuss this because these issues can't be solved in a, oh, the clear answer is that you should <laughs> because there is often no clear and mm. one right answer. Um and so if it would be more likely that this issue has been brewing, we know this family's coming in, we know they don't really agree with what we want to do, can we organise a meeting? Uh, so that would be the usual one. But, but sometimes it's, can you just come down and discuss right now what we should yep. do? And what, one of the things that um, ethicists do, when I said before we bring moral or ethical reasoning to bear, that means we start asking questions about those principles. So tell me about uh, the uh, recurrence. How likely do you think, uh, first of all, the diagnostic test will, will um, give you an answer that you can do something with? If you get a positive one, what will the treatment look like? Is is it likely to be curative? Like how how certain are you of what you're about to embark on? It uh, sounds like there's yeah. a few things that... I mean, having seen these situations a million yeah. times too, um, so I'm cheating a little bit, but there's a couple of things that come to mind immediately for me. Yeah. One is the ability to strip away some of the emotions from the situation. Yes. Because, you know, when these things first come up, you'll trigger in both the patients, the family, the clinical staff, a range of, range of emotions. And so one of the things I see happen when the ethicists get bought in is everyone gets to take a deep breath yes. and <laughs> just strip away a little bit of the, this should happen and this shouldn't happen and how dare you um, language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that a big part? I'm just, yeah. Absolutely. Of way to turn and, that and it into goes to that idea of um, bringing reasoning, uh, bringing thinking and starting to become aware of the range of perspectives who um, in this situation and the values, which goes back to your... Panel beta, uh, you're pointing at. Yes, yes, sorry. <laughs> um, comment about relativism and where to draw the line um, on respect for other people's views, values, um, beliefs, and what is universally the right thing, or, you know, what is objectively the correct thing to do. If I could tempt you to editorialise for a moment, um, is the law your friend in the in these situations, or is it often antagonistic to the way that an ethicist thinks about scenarios? The law can be helpful in drawing a line, um, but off, we rarely refer to the law because it seems so distant mm. and it doesn't um, deal with the nuances of the situation. For example, the law says that um, mature minors such as Tom, 15-year-old Tom, um, should have a say in their health. And But it depends on Tom's um, capacity, his motivation, his background, and that could be another whole sort of battle really to find out what Tom thinks although it's ethically really important to do but the law doesn't really help you mm. to do that it just sets a standard what I'm just wondering what is the role of the patient in all this can <laughs> they ask to see you themselves can like the patient can say can I get a second opinion from the infectious diseases doctor can they ask to get a clinical ethics opinion can you they speak to you Sorry. I'm just wondering if the patients are on the committee yeah, they're, they're good questions and there's lots of variability about patients' involvement in clinical ethics. 
I think um, they in some in some hospitals they do have patients on the uh, committee, um, but mostly the the uh, committee that I'm on at the Children's Hospital we sometimes see patients if doctors request it or if clinicians request it, but generally we set ourselves up as an advisory committee for clinicians to be able to think more carefully, thoroughly about uh, ethical challenges and then that they get to decide and incorporate that as they see fit. Because it does vary from hospital to hospital, it doesn't it? It absolutely does, I mean, yeah. it's, it's probably worth pointing out across the world, most hospitals don't have clinical ethics service at this point. In the last decade or two, various hospitals, especially in Australia, have brought them in. America's probably a bit ahead. Yeah. And uh, they've brought them in in different ways. Some are using a committee structure such as yours, where, yes. you know, led by an ethicist uh, who mm. leads the discussions, teaches, trains everyone to do it in their clinical practice, but offers flexibility, talks on the phone, can see mm. people if needed. Others, it's more like a specialty where they, you know, go and see the patient talk to the clinicians, da 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 arrange meetings. So there's no set model yet, is there? Not yet. It's evolving. No, absolutely. And I think as people um, hear, patients hear about uh, a clinical ethics service, I think it's um, very likely there'll be more and more people saying, well, what does an ethicist think about this and can I speak to one? This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I think, panel beta, you were edging towards the mic like you were burning to ask a question. Oh, there is something on my mind and it's relating to how ethics change over time and how we're entering into a brave new world with technology and artificial intelligence in the medical space. Mm -hmm. How's ethics shaping up at the moment to deal with, with those sorts of issues? Well, I think the issues that technology raises are not dissimilar to other ethical issues, really. Just a different set of constructs involved. And although they they certainly raise um, issues of privacy for people, um, issues of autonomy, their uh, capacity to choose, and um, uh, also issues of responsibility, uh, for clinicians, if they're outsourcing yeah. um, to some autom- automatic um, technology, yeah. But there's yeah. I guess, and, and you know, the grand question: What does it mean to be human? Mm. So, and when that comes into considerations of life um, and living, then what it means to be human? Can technology keep somebody alive or not? Um, yes. Must be quite teasing. Yes, yes. and there's various values that have been um, contested forever about the value of life and whether the value of being alive diminishes when you're not conscious or able to experience anything because then you're not suffering is is one argument that yeah. comes in. So the value of keeping somebody alive for the family for example, uh, a question ethicists will often ask is, where is the value for this patient in living? They're not um, able to think or feel or um, communicate. And yet there is some value sometimes for, for others. It just seems like, you know, I guess the thing for me when it gets to the ethics and uh, is just the broad range of ideas that you have to incorporate into an actual thing. Like you raised the case of Tom, Mm. 15 year old, family says they don't want to pursue any further chemotherapy, might have a relapse. They want to refer treatment. Yet you're going to be dealing with values from such a broad range of people, a 15 year old, his parents, his grandparent, obviously, who runs a herbalist shop, the clinicians. And it's going to encompass, as panel beta said, law, philosophy, your values, your approach to life plus your approach to ethics and i guess you know i guess it seems to me that it might, there are so many variables that you will never get the, the same outcome in any two situations Necess- well it, it's 
yeah, it's a bit I, like a fingerprint. There's so many different, you know, it just strikes me. Um, and, I, and I guess my question comes down to this. Do you help people sort out answers or do you help people sort out an approach to developing answers? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I think we do a bit of both and, and depending upon the case. So if we, if we go back to that complex case of Tom where there are so many variables, we, by asking, by by chasing each variable, like how much responsibility should Tom have and how much should we give him in this mm-hmm. um, situation. So that means asking about what he wants, what's the history of um, his relationship with his family. So we, we chase that one. We chase the pros and cons, the risks and benefits of, of continuing with chemotherapy mm-hmm. because if there's a 10% only chance that the next round of chemotherapy is likely to help help mm. then perhaps that changes where the response goes so i do think that although on presentation this seems like a hopelessly complex case and how can we get anywhere with it you do get somewhere with it when you get people um, probing and reasoning about each possible option so that in the end the best possible option falls out maybe not just one but but one yep. or two comes out of that complexity do you think all doctors should... Oh, sorry, do you have a question over there, Dr. Patient? You, you, you asked the question. That was the question I was going to have. Uh, outcomes and, and resolutions, you, there, mm. there is such a level of delicate diplomacy in this day and age between saying, I think you need to reevaluate facts. And there's been such a difficulty between saying a person's right and a person's wrong because our initial conversations are shallow enough that they just include emotion. Yes. And as what you were saying, to take the deep breath and let's discuss the evidence that you have that, that, that these alternative treatments could work or yeah. that they couldn't work. It's, it's a very uh, interesting situation. Yes, and um, clinicians find it incredibly helpful in my experience. You know what, though? I, you know, just to finish this interview off because we're going to move on, I want to ask you one last question on this. Because if I was sitting at home right now listening, I'd be thinking, why the hell hasn't this been going on for the last 200 years? Why are we needing clinical ethicists? Surely the hospitals have been doing this all along. Is there an answer to that? Well, one things got more complex, maybe. So yeah, go no, ahead. no. One answer is that it's not an obvious benefit. It's a, it's a bit subtle. And um, managers of hospitals measure their success by throughput or length of stay or other quantitative Mm. measures um, based upon cost usually, which is understandable. But these outcomes of uh, equipping clinicians with thinking skills of speaking with patients are less measurable, but they're slowly creeping in. So there was a need to sort of... So ethics have always existed, but... They have been getting lost maybe in the last couple of decades uh, or in the not managerial world. And maybe it's clinical ethicists who are more applied ethicists are starting to use uh, their ethics reasoning to practical applications and I think that that's starting to right. um, grow. I've got a question for Training Wheels. Hi. But just before I do, it just occurs to me about this historical matter that the history of hospitals as the institution are essentially religious, so they wouldn't have needed to go to ethicists for a long time. They would have just organised themselves around religious principles. Training Wheels, where does ethics fit in in curriculum terms at the moment? We, the lovely Professor Lynn Gillam gives us a few lectures in first year, which are always extremely fascinating from my point of view. I did ethics in my part of my undergrad though, so I'm a bit biased, I suppose. Um, and we, a part of our conference, which I always bang on about how good it is, there's always a lot of ethical things that come up there. In terms of the mainstream, rest of the curriculum, not a lot. But it, it comes up. Actually, no, that's not true. We have, we do have, uh, we have a lot of tutorials. So we, we, t- we talk about it a lot, actually. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating area. I mean, I've loved it too. 30s in the hospital, seeing it develop over the years, seeing they are, and as you say, training was they're always the best case conferences because oh, yeah. you know you just everyone gets hot onto the collar, yeah. and there's always someone who's standing up and you know virtue signalling. There's always someone who's standing up and going mad because everyone else is bad. There's always someone who's looks like they're hippie who's peaceful and got a beautiful voice. Actually, that might be you, Claire. Oh, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you. You're going to stick around for the last segment anyway, but thank you for coming in and talking about that. Um, We are going to come back and talk a little bit with Dr. Patient about the issue of stigma, so stick around. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr. Patient, what do you got for us? All righty. Look, as a, as a patient and as a peer ambassador, um, I've been all about stigma. I was about stigma last year when I was on, and I've been all about stigma, specifically in complex mental health. Now, look, following on from last year, I was talking about the Stigma Watch program. I was talking about the Stigma Report Card, which is still open. So I'm saying we've got thousands, but we need way more thousands. So... If you have an experience with a complex mental health issue, Our Turn to Speak is the website. That's a website. So is that yep. one word? Our Turn, Our to, turn speak. to Speak. Com com dot com. Au. And uh, please, we're open until I think the 31st of March. We're getting responses, but we need more. So if you have had an experience or someone you know has had an experience, get on there. You may be able to do the, the entire survey. Part of the survey, we, we need more responses. So get out there. But pretty much though, everyone's experience knows someone with. Well, they 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 everyone knows someone with a complex mental illness. So pretty tell much. Them. Yeah. So can't they? Do, can they do part of it themselves, or do they no, have to? No, it is a an, person who oh, who. Right. Well, no, no. They, there are qualifying questions, so that's why I'm not. I'm going to leave it in a grey area. There are right. qualifying questions for people, so we need people there to go and, and get involved. And what's but, a complex mental illness? Well, we have. Yeah, what's I've, a simple mental illness? Yeah, <laughs> I've <laughs> had depression. Do I qualify? Yeah. Is depression you, complex? Uh, <laughs> it can be, if it leads to another, to other symptoms. You know, it can. It, it, we start with issues, whether or not they turn into a complex mental. Right health issue or an illness that, that we used to refer to it as, um, that is a very that is a very sound So question. if in doubt, jump on the website, say it one yeah. more time. Our turn to speak. Our turn to speak. Dot com dot com. So we're, we're, what we are talking about is the schizophrenia spectrum disorders, bipolar, personality, obsessive, compulsive and related, post-traumatic stress, dissociative disorders, eating disorders, uh, severe treatment-resistant depression. That, mm-hmm. there, there we go. And um, anxiety requiring multi-agency support. I'm literally reading this list out because there, there are yep. some low prevalence ones that we really need help with. Fair enough. So, uh, so jump on. But this leads me okay. to the topic. Sorry, we got sidetracked. No, it's all good. Get to your topic. <laughs> so while we're making progress and I'm getting there, Channel 9 went full retro this year and not in a good way. So during the Australian Open. Isn't that on 7, sorry? No, I think it was That's nine. nine. Sorry, yeah, I was yeah. out of the country. Yeah. Could be seven. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. One of the TV stations. One of the TV stations went full retro and Nick Kyrgios's behaviour came up this year and referred to by highly paid and well-known commentators as schizophrenic. Charming. Yeah, and I was like, for the love of golden mullets, how is this? <laughs> Those golden mullets. Golden mullets. It should be the hologram on Australian passports. You know, everyone's got a golden mullet. How, how is it in 2020 that this is still apparent? Excuse me. <coughs> so in my head, I started questioning everything I was doing. I was like, are we, are we sending the wrong message? What is this commentary? Are we hitting the wrong marks talking about this? But I dialed it back and I said, okay, what was the experience that you had that finally made you understand a person with a complex mental health issue and say, these stereotypes are wrong. This, this doesn't add up. This person doesn't fit the profile that I've been led to believe. Now, day one with my diagnosis, I had all the stereotypes too because we'd had no history in our family. I went to the stereotypes because that's what I've been raised with. Now, we've got our stats and we've got our facts and we're telling people, you know, this is not the case. People aren't like this. But out of the one in five, there are four people who know that one in five who has a complex mental health issue who changed their opinion, who suddenly went, this experience that I'm having right now is showing that this person with this diagnosis is not the stereotype I've been led to believe. I'm throwing it out to you guys. What was your experience? Who wants to go first? I'm seeing everyone running away from the microphone. <laughs> Everyone, we're having second a second thinking time. Frank, so I'm not sure I'm clear of the question. Just come at me, come at us. What was your experience that changed your opinion of a person with a complex mental health issue, uh-huh. right. a person with schizophrenia who you would have instantly thought split personality? They have all sorts of voices going on in their head telling them to murder people, and I'm being extreme here. Mm. 
You know, what was it that you knew a person, brother, sister, cousin, friend, where you suddenly went, hang on a second, this, this person's just having a conversation and they've got this? How is, how is that the case? Here we go. Well, I have um, a couple of academic colleagues who I had been working with, actually writing a couple of papers with, and found out um, along the way yep. that they had schizophrenia. Yep. Um, so that experience, I think, um, was somewhat um, clarifying. Yeah, what, what went through your mental process? I'm interested. Oh, I, I was surprised, I suppose, that they were operating at such a sort of high level because mm. I had a vision that maybe with such a complex illness they're not able to do that. Yep. So there, there is a lot of – there's more cognitive function that's occurring. So we, we, we had this ingrained association where they can't operate, they can't think properly, you know. And what we're not talking about a first-stage psychosis. Look, the first-stage psychosis is quite often the most terrifying. That is quite often the, the one that we see the most of, a person presenting with these terribly, terribly terrifying visions or these terrifying things that causes them to have quite emotional reactions. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're in the studio with myself, Dr. Doolittle, the panel beater, trainer wheels, Professor Claire Delaney, and uh, Dr. Patient is talking about stigma, and he threw it out to us. What was the moment that we had an experience with someone with a complex mental illness that made us question our, the stereotypes that existed in our head. And just before I rudely threw to a station announcement with um, Dragon in the background, Trainer Wheels was leaning towards the mic. Yeah, so as a bright-eyed person, I think I was in my first year of medicine, so I had no patient exposure really, no, you know, nothing in the professional arena. I had a close family member having a first episode psychosis and it wasn't scary. For them, their... Their psychosis was very internalised and was not aggressive or mm. externalised at all and I could just have a conversation with them. There we go. We, and were they talking about it? While they, yep, well, yeah, if I yeah. asked the right questions. Yeah. And so with your training or with what you had been brought up with, how did, what did that shift? Like what, what did you suddenly go, well, hang on, this is, this is wrong. Why, why was I thinking this previously? I guess I think my, my thought was probably, you know, if I saw someone, say I was, saw someone in the street who was, you know, having a hard time, my, my first instinct would be to run away. Mm. But in this instance, I couldn't. It was my family member and they needed help. And I just realised I could actually just ask them what they needed or yeah. talk to them and, you know, ask them what was going on or if there was anything I could get them, if I could get them a beer. You know, you can just – they're still people, right? There we go. And, yeah, th this is the thing. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, th I was just – I've got my perplexed look on my face, which translates in radio so well. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's because, you know, I'm trying to think back because, you know, what you're saying, Trainer, was I definitely, you know, had experience of mental illness in my family. I had a grandfather admitted to hospital with um, – dementia that turned out to be just too many sleeping tablets and when they took him off the sleeping tablets he was no longer demented i had another grandfather who'd been in the war and had elements of ptsd and they used to call and he had some memory ones. i call it bin zwang as i looked it up at the time i've forgotten now um and various and we had a, an aunt who had um, been in and out of mont park and uh you know i grew up in and my dad's an actor i grew up in a family with lots of you know there's lots of experiences of mental illness mm. and i was, loved it as a medical student and my best mate and who I lived with in med school committed suicide um, after he, after we qualified. He wasn't a doctor. He was a law student. Um, and uh, so I had lots of experience. But And I don't even remember when I sort of thought about mental illness because I, you know, I know when I went into medicine I wanted to be a psychiatrist. So, you know, I knew from med, med school that was what I thought was most interesting. But I guess for me there was a patient probably that there's one patient that's always stuck in my head and uh, I think I can do it without, you know, with appropriate de-identification. But she, because it's, let's face it, it's 30 years ago. Um, but she was a young woman and she was very much like me, very much basically someone who I would socialise with, someone who, you know, if I met her at a party, I'd be find very attractive. And, she, you know, it's just the sort of person I hung out with at university. And she came into hospital and the, um, and the, 
there was lots of doubt about what was wrong with her. And she had what was called simple schizophrenia. It's a form that, you know, you don't present with some acute psychotic episode, but lots of unusual behaviours. And the boss said she's got schizophrenia and I just found it, it was very difficult for everyone because she just looked to me like a person my age who was confused about the world. And for a good month, I didn't buy it. I just thought, no, but then, you know, and that was back in the days when if you came into hospital, there was no rush to get you out. There was no KPI of length of stay. Yeah. It was you came in until um, you'd been adequately helped and then you went home. And she stayed in for quite a while because she was very... She, and it just became apparent she'd lost a lot of the abilities to make decisions. She spent hours a day sitting, just looking in a mirror, um, just vague you know, and confused. And after a while, she was able to... Exp- tell us when she gained enough trust that yes she was hearing voices and stuff like that Mm. and that threw all of my attitudes because it showed me that it presents in so many different ways and it's not just hearing voices it's not just this and there's phases of the illness of course she had treatment and everything you know improved and yada 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 and yeah i guess that was the one for me that you know made me realize that i could be the person i could be talking to could have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or depression and i could not know and of course subsequently i found that out many times over including when i had depression myself and i didn't tell anyone. <laughs> and this is this is where i'm discovering patterns of it really is it is the experiences that people are having you know the the experiences that they go through rather than you know and we we're presenting to people these statistics saying these people do not have this they do not have that but then you you push past it and when it actually turns into a, a relatable documentable documentable discussion of i was sitting with this person i lived with this person i worked with this person i i had a party with this person and it it shifts that and i'm finding that we aren't sharing experiences as much anymore because of just a little bit too much disconnect so and I just think with the one in five, we can we can get that extra four and give everyone that experience that they need just to really sit there and talk to a person. But some people don't want to. There is still that negativity where some people want to keep that, that disconnect because that means, oh, do I have to address something about myself? Do I have to, do I have to look into myself to change that? You know, so uh, I'm, I'm interested. Look, with, with us, the, the idea is... You, Sorry, you were going to say something? Oh, I was going to come up with a scenario, but no, sorry, keep going. No, no, that I was going to come back to that and to say that, that when I went through it, all, the, all the, the stereotypes on my day one compared to now, compared to 20, nearly 20 years later, it's, I get how where doctors came from to where they are now and how there were those symptoms that filtered their way down to community level that people thought it was this and thought it was that. But where we're at now, they, so many of them just need to be thrown out the window. Sorry, what were you saying? I was um, thinking back to your opening uh, comment about uh, the representation of, you know, in the vernacular, schizophrenic, yep. talk about Nick Kyrgios uh, in the tennis. Um, my f- I've had uh, more recent uh, exposure to people with, co- I think, what we're calling complex um, mental health issues. But I was trying to think back to really formative experiences, and they probably are all, f- like for most people, pop culture or media representations. Mm. And and I was thinking about the first time I saw Psycho, the Hitchcock mm-hmm. film Psycho. And, mm-hmm. and obviously Norman Bates is not well. Um, but I found that kind of mental health, to be incredibly, um, simp- I was very sympathetic to mm-hmm. it. So, and and um, then I started thinking about other popular cultural representations of mental mm-hmm. health, and I've not been scared or intimidated by mental health. I don't know why, mm. but I every time I see it in those representations in popular culture, my disposition is to be sympathetic mm. to that person, even if they're a serial killer. You know, mm. in the in the. And that relates to our upbringing. I yeah, think we, we actually develop empathy through through that understanding. Yeah. there's been a, there's been a lot of talk of the Joker. We've, right, we've, we've got that going on. And and look, uh, I I it's a sensitive topic to talk about, and they really handled it as best they could with the film. I think it's absolutely paramount that everyone sees it, but uh, it's not a it's certainly not the original stylization of comic book they went they went pretty damn dark with this and uh they captured certain imagery and certain stylization of the film which was absolutely incredible with what they did i think the 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 if you haven't seen it there this is this is not a spoiler but there is a characterization in it where um he laughs but he can't separate the pain from laughter 
So there should be, you know, in a, in a normal environment, you should have laughter and pain, and sometimes there's pain with laughter. But when you can't separate laughter and pain, which which is so incredibly portrayed in the film, that uh, that that's where there is there is some problems. Isn't part of part of the problem for the stereotypes in particular around psychosis are mm-hmm. uh, that psychosis is incredibly broad. It's look, it's relatively. Uh, rare. It's one percent of the population. Mm-hmm. Although you can have it in various other circumstances as well. So probably more like twenty percent are going to experience in their life if you include delirium and whatnot. But in its proper form, it's about one percent. But then it's so hugely variable. Mm-hmm. So most people will only get to see psychosis in the true form a few times in their life, and it'll be so striking for them that that will form a very fixed idea of what psychosis is. Yet you put 15 people who have got a psychosis in a room and everyone will be slightly different. So you've got all these strange representations and this commonest view that gets out there is that stupid idea that schizophrenia is a split personality. It's not even close. But that stupid idea that still in 2020, a commentator who's obviously well-educated, et cetera, et cetera, can still make a moronic comment like that. So I guess we've only got a minute or two left. What would you suggest, is there anything people can do to... Is there anything all of us can do to overcome this? Yes, experience. Find someone in your in your one in five circle. So, what <laughs> questions? Would, I'm going to rush you because yep. we only got minutes left. What yep. question would should if someone? What sh- should we ask someone? An open question. Tell me about your experience. That's what you should ask. If a person is presenting, if a person has a history, if like you know that's Dave, uh, he's lived with bipolar. You, you sit there, you crack open whatever whatever beverage you want, and say, "Tell me about it." Or when you go on a date. So it should be part of your dating questionnaire profile now. So what's your favourite football team? What's your favourite colour? What movies do you like? Have you ever experienced a voice in your head? Have you ever had a mental illness? Is it yours? (laughs) Do you find me attractive? Just throw it into the armamentarium. There's the first clue. When they say yes, you go, well, clearly. No, every, you know, it should be part of every conversation. I'm joking, but that's what I'm saying. And it. it is incredibly interesting to ask people, you know, and if you say to people a question like, have you ever had an experience in your life where you've wondered whether you've um, got a mental illness? Everyone will tell you yes. I'll tell you right now. Everyone, mm. assuming they're over 18, they'll say, I've had that experience and say, me too. What was yours? Mm. Bang. Hey, we're going to have to round up. That's why I'm rushing you at the end there, Dr. Patient. You'll get used to me sitting here um, rushing at the key points. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening to our second show for the year. It's Radiotherapy. Um, we want to remind you about our uh, social media. Radiotherapy on Triple R is the Facebook one. Radiotherapy underscore Triple R, which is just one word, triple with an R on the end. And on Twitter, it was the complex. Um, at underscore radiotherapy underscore. It's not that complex. It's good because someone stole the original. Hey, uh, we appreciate you listening. As I say, though, please feel free to jump on any of our social media, give us ideas for the year, that sort of stuff. Um, let me thank the team, panel beta, Dr. Patient. Did you enjoy your first show? Was it regular? Yeah, it was awesome. Um, we'll be seeing you soon. Trainer wheels, study hard this year, finally in medical school. Need yeah. any tips? Just ask me. I think I got 51% in finally. Perfect. So I'm like an expert. <laughs> and Professor Claire Delaney, thank you so much for coming in and telling us all about clinical ethics. It was fantastic. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.